Go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, if you're using a pew Bible, is going to be on page 1067. 1067. Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 25. We're going to start from the beginning of the chapter and read all the way to verse 25. Hebrews chapter 10. If this is the first time that you've used a Bible, the big numbers are going to be the chapter numbers, and the little numbers are going to be the verse numbers. So we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 25. And it says this. Since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the reality itself of those things, it can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered? Since the worshipers, purified once and for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices... There is a reminder of sins year after year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, as he was coming into the world, he said, You did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, See, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. After he says above, you do not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. Every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. Now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. Since he who promised is faithful. And 
let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the perfect sacrifice of your son. And we acknowledge now that we can't do anything apart from your power. We have no control over our present circumstances. We don't even have control to understand your word well unless your spirit reveals it to us. So we ask God that you would open our ears to hear. That you would uncover our eyes to see. God, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts and illumine our darkened minds. And we trust that you will do it by the authority of your word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How then shall we live? We heard two weeks ago about Hebrews, the earlier section that we read on Jesus' perfect sacrifice for us, that there's nothing that we can possibly do to redeem ourselves, to earn our own salvation, to stand right before God, but is holy through the sacrifice of Christ. And the right question to ask afterwards is, how then shall we live? If Christ dies for you, what does it mean for you? Some will tell you that if Christ has died for you, then that means that the answer is freedom. You get to live how you please. That Christ has come to liberate us from rules and regulations. He desires for you to live a free, autonomous life. Others say that Christ has come to redeem you from your life filled with sin. And that now you could finally live righteously under the law. Therefore, you who know Christ have to live as Christ tells you to live. And that you have to live under moralism. Those are partially true. Those are good truths for us today. But the author of Hebrews paints a different picture. A a more complete picture of what we are to do based on the work of Christ, grounded upon the work of Christ. So here's the main idea for us this morning. Because of what Christ has done, let us draw near to God, hold on to hope, and watch out for one another. I'll repeat it. Because of what Christ has done, let us... Draw near to God, hold on to hope, and watch out for one another. So here's how we're going to divide this sermon. We're going to begin with the foundation of what Christ has done. And based upon that foundation, we'll build three commands that the author of Hebrews gives us based on what Christ has done for us. Namely, to one, draw near. Two, hold on. And three, watch out. Okay, one, draw near. Two, hold on. And three, watch out. 
So we'll begin with the foundation, what Christ has done for us. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. This is what the author of Hebrews is saying to summarize a previous passage that we had heard of two weeks ago. You can, through the power of Christ, enter the sanctuary with boldness. You can enter the holiest of holy places with confidence. And this boldness is not of yourselves. No. The author of Hebrews here is not calling us to have boldness. He says that we already have boldness. He says, since we have boldness to enter. And why do we have this boldness? We have this boldness through the person and work of Christ. It's through his blood that we can enter this sanctuary. Now, this means that we can't enter this sanctuary through any other means. There's nothing else that we can do to enter the sanctuary only through the blood of Jesus. This means that our works, our toil, our own blood, sweat, and tears cannot help us enter the sanctuary of God. This means that worship of false gods, even though they may be sincere, though you may try to live a righteous life, cannot help you enter the sanctuary of this God. This also means that a Messiah, a Jesus, who merely lives a godly life as an example for us, without dying as our substitute on the cross, cannot help us enter the sanctuary of God. There may be those who believe in a Jesus Christ, who will not uphold his work on the cross and his blood, and those cannot enter. Only the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, if Christ did not bleed, then we are not freed. There's no way for us to enter the sanctuary of God apart from the work of Christ on the cross. His perfect sacrifice, once and for all, and it's through His blood that we can enter the sanctuary of God. If you're not a Christian, this might sound a little odd. You may think that religion is here to give you rules and regulations to weigh you down to live a moralistic life. And to be fair, a lot of Christianity today will misconstrue this and present it in that way. That Christ is here to teach you how to be a good person. That God is this genie in the sky who rewards you for the good things that you do and then punishes you if you do sin, like a Christian karma. No, we believe as Christians that there is absolutely nothing that human beings can do to make themselves stand right before God. There's nothing that you can do. And in case we miss it, the author elaborates in verse 20. Read with me. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain. That is through his flesh. 
Christ has opened or inaugurated a new way through the curtain, which is his flesh. In other words, if you want to enter this holy place, if you want to enter the sanctuary of God, you have one way that he's open for you. One inaugurated way, which is his flesh. Jesus Christ hangs on the cross and bears the sins of the world. And as he cries that it is finished, the curtain that blocks access to the most holy place tears in half. And the curtain's tear mirrors the tear of Christ's body. We can only enter the sanctuary through the mangled body of the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world. If you're not a Christian, this is the good news for you this morning, that we deserve sin and death, or we deserve death as a result of our sin against a holy and righteous God. We have done wrong, and a just God has every right to punish us and condemn us to everlasting torment. But Christ, God himself, became flesh, became man, and lived among us. Lived the perfect life that we could never live. And as he hung on the cross, he was torn for us. And if you believe in this Christ, if you repent of your sins and trust in him, you can enter the holy place through his body torn for you. There's only one way. For those of us who are Christians, this means that we cannot minimize our sins. We can't minimize the difficulty that it takes to enter this holy sanctuary. When we trusted in Christ, we did not merely receive a get-out-of-hell card. Christ was torn for you. He bled for you. And if he did not get torn, there would be no entrance for you. So we ought to treasure that great gift. Christ crucified gives us access to this holy God. Verse 21 goes on to say that he is a great high priest. Read with me. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now, let's focus on this idea of high priest. So Christ doesn't just stop with his sacrifice. He doesn't just end there. He didn't just die on the cross and stay dead. He rose victorious over sin and death, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And right now, as he presides at God's right hand, he is mediating as a great high priest. In other words, he mediates for you perfectly. He saw that mistake that you made yesterday morning, and he said to the Father, My blood covers him. Praise God. He sees your sin and your disobedience and he covers it with your blood. He advocates before the Father for you. We talked about this two weeks ago. And and, and he doesn't just do this in some form of repetitive, um, 
ineffective fashion. No. We talked about this two weeks ago that, that priests would stand up every single morning, go to the temple, and make sacrifices week after week, sacrificing bulls and goats that don't do anything. But Christ has offered himself as one perfect sacrifice forever. Which means that if he is mediating for us, that we stand right before God perfectly. There's nothing left for us to do to stand right before God. Your good works do not earn your salvation. In fact, you can't do anything to mediate God's grace to yourself on your own. Some of us tend to think that God is this genie or, or this input system like a vending machine where you put in your good works and out pops a soda pop of grace for you. God does not operate like that. See, when Christ does the finished work on the cross and he mediates for you, that means you have right standing before God right now. Brother or sister, if you have sinned last week a lot like I have, that means that you still stand right before God right now. If you feel torn and discouraged by your sin, if you feel trapped in your life, you stand right before God right now because of the finished work of Christ. Because of his priestly work for you. And this is a solid foundation upon we must build. Don't confuse it. You have to find your identity in Christ first before you obey his commands. If you begin to think that you have to obey his commands in order to obtain your identity in Christ, then you have entered legalism. You have entered a vending machine God. And that is not the God that we worship. God has given us grace upon grace upon grace. And it's from that identity in Christ. It's from that foundation of Christ's work for us, his mangled body, his priestly work for us, that we can obey God with joy. It begins with Christ. And it's from this solid foundation of Christ's work that God exhorts us with three commands. Three commands. The first, draw near to God. To draw near to God. So the author of Hebrews says, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary, since he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain of Christ's flesh, and since we have his great priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. If we are to draw near to God with a true heart assured with faith, or we are to draw near to God with a true heart assured with faith and hearts sprinkled and bodies washed, Now, what does this mean? I mean, I don't think any of us walk into the shower and just kind of sprinkle ourselves with water every morning and then go out for a day's work. I hope not. And I'm guessing that those around you will know if you do that. No, the answer is is found in the Old Testament. So turn back with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. 
Ezekiel chapter 36. Keep your finger in Hebrews 10. We'll go back there. But this is the text that the author of Hebrews is referring to. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. And Ezekiel prophesies about this moment that the author of Hebrews was talking about. He says this. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will also place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I gave your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. Ezekiel prophesies the characteristics of the restored people of God. The people of God have been banished from their promised land. They were exiled into Babylon And as Ezekiel is prophesying to them, he's talking to them about the future promise of a restored people of God under his rule and reign. And these people will come from all nations. They will be sprinkled with clean water and given new hearts of flesh, beating, bursting with life. They are given the Spirit, and they will obey God's commands. They'll actually be able to do it. And they will lead into this new land where God will be their God, and they will be his people. And Jesus fulfills Ezekiel's prophecy. Can you see that? Through Christ, all the people of God will be drawn near, cleansed with his blood, given a beating heart of flesh, and drawn into the land of the sanctuary. Through his finished work, he calls you in. Christian, if you trust in Christ's work, that means that you can draw near. You've been purified from your evil conscience. Your heart of stone has disintegrated. Your identity is found in Christ. Don't be, don't, do not be deceived by the distortions of the devil. He will attack your identity in Christ. Can you really be sure that you believe in him? I mean, can you really say that you're worthy of his grace? Do you really think that the life that you're living lines up with the life of Christ? Brothers and sisters, our assurance is not found in our sufficiency, but in Christ's. That is why we can have full assurance. It's not because we're reliable people, because we're not. Because Christ is fully reliable. Though we feel our sin-stained rags cling to our flesh, we can know that we are washed clean because Christ is pure. 
He sprinkled us with clean water so we can draw near to God, not fearful of his judgment of us, not fearful of his wrath, but we can draw near draped in the righteousness of Christ. That brings us to the second command. So we are to draw near to God. We are also to hold on to the confession. Hold on to the confession. Verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. The author of Hebrews is telling us, so hold on to the confession of our hope. What is the confession that we are holding on to? The confession that we're holding on to is a new covenant that God makes with his people. Right? You can see it in earlier in chapter 10. Read with me from verse 16 or verse 15. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says. I will put my law on their hearts and I will write them on their minds and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. This new covenant is through the work of Christ. We hold on to the confession, brothers and sisters, that Jesus saves sinners. That's the good news that we hold on to. But holding on to this confession is not easy. Oftentimes, trusting Jesus can be really difficult, can it? I mean, how can we hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering? Without a single twitch or tremor. The author gives us the reason why we can hold fast. Since he who promised is faithful. Since he who promised is faithful. We can hold on to the confession of our hope because Christ is a faithful Savior. When Jesus says that he's going to do something... He's going to do it. When Jesus says that he can tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days, he does it. When he tells Lazarus to rise from the dead, even though his body is decaying, he does it. And when Jesus says that he was going to die on the cross, and Peter's objection tells him that no, he will not let that happen. Jesus doesn't let his own followers' objections stop him. Brothers and sisters, the greatest torrents of this life cannot stop Christ's faithfulness to us. Your sin is incapable of stopping Christ's faithfulness to you. We can have unwavering hope because Christ is unwaveringly faithful. His faithfulness is not contingent on us. It's a reflection of his character, of his care, of his Love. Are you tired this morning? Maybe you've had a difficult week and you feel like your hold is starting to slip. Trust Christ's steady hand that holds you. This also means that when sin tries to attack you, you can trust Christ's unwavering promise to sustain you and to give you glorious rewards. When you're faced with temptation from sin and from the devil, you can trust Christ's promises for you. 
That this light momentary affliction is saving for you an eternal weight of glory. So this morning, when you're struggling with sin and temptation like I was, I can text brothers and sisters, I can pray and ask God, and I could trust his glorious grace for me. That whatever pleasure sin may try to offer you, that God is saving for you an eternal weight of glory. And Christ is faithful. He's not the friend who borrows something from you and never returns it. He keeps his word. And he promises for us abounding grace. So we can hold on to that confession. We can stand firm and confident in what Christ has done for us. And lastly... The author of Hebrews calls us to watch out for one another. To watch out for one another. Verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. Not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other. And all the more as you see the day approaching. There are four commands that that the author of Hebrews gives us here. To watch out. To provoke. To not neglect gathering together and to encourage each other. Do you notice the shift that just happened? The author of Hebrews goes from focusing on the vertical relationship between you and God and shifts into the horizontal. That the work of Christ doesn't just redeem you and your vertical relationship with God, but that you actually stand right before God with a group of people. You are not standing in the sanctuary, this giant chasm of God's holiness, alone. He draws you in with other people. And now he's teaching us how we are to live with one another. The first command, watch out. A better translation would be to consider or to care for one another. To take ownership of one another. To actually look out for one another. I wonder if you actually consider or watch out for the other people in this room. How much of your time is actually occupied, concerned for the people of this church? I mean, do we really think and watch out for one another as fervently as we should? You may ask, but who am I supposed to care for? The answer, the membership. Those who are members of this church. Those who have been committed to this church. Those who have formally committed to taking responsibility for one another's discipleship. You see, church membership isn't just some arbitrary arbitrary commitment. You aren't joining a country club. right? It's actually making clear who you are and who you are committed to, and those who you aren't committed to. It lets you know that I'm committed to these particular individuals. I have a responsibility before God for them. It also has a couple other effects. It, it, here, here are some things that church membership does for you. Firstly, it actually helps you to take responsibility for members that are different from you. It actually helps you take responsibility for those that are different from you. Have you ever looked at someone, noticed something in their life, but just thought to yourself, well, I don't really know them that well. So I'm just going to kind of 
take a step back and let them be. Or if you've ever told someone else that you had concerns about somebody and they told you to go talk to them, you say, oh, but it's not my place. If you're a church member, it is your place. It is absolutely your place. You have committed to them. It also means that you can't lax on your responsibility as a church member. You can't just come lackadaisically. Like you're actually committed to a church family. You have a commitment to them. You don't just tell your wife, "Ah, I just see you in the evenings. That's not how it works. You're committed. So you're to care for one another. It begins with the heart. It actually begins with a genuine concern for one another. But how am I supposed to watch out? Do I just bring a pair of binoculars every single Sunday morning? What am I supposed to do? Well, the other Hebrews actually stretches out this command of watching out into the other three commands. Okay, So we're going to walk through those together. Firstly, provoke love and good works. Or provoke each other to love and good works. Part of... Caring for one another involves instigation. When you care for your brothers and sisters in Christ, you push them to be more like Jesus. You prod them to be more like Jesus. You provoke them to be more like Jesus. Towards love and good works. Now, this doesn't mean that we're trying to create a series of rules that everyone is trying to follow. We're not out here trying to chain someone down with the rules of society. No, it means that we are appealing to their identity in Christ. We're looking at each other and we're seeing what Christ has done for each other. And we're pushing each other to live out the new identity that we found in Christ. So if I see a brother in sin and I'm trying to provoke him to love and good works, I am reaffirming his identity in Christ. I am chiseling out the part of the old self that's wasting away, that doesn't line up. And I'm pushing him towards Christ's likeness. I'm reaffirming that identity. I'm pushing him towards grace. This means that as a lover and follower of Jesus, we are to love and do good works. And we need each other to help push each other to do so. It is a lonesome toil to try to do love and good works by yourself. Actually, by nature of love and good works, you really can't do it just by yourself. It's easy to love yourself. It's easy to do good works for yourself. It's a lot harder to do that for others. It's a lot harder to do it day after day, faithfully. We need each other. There are going to be days where you are killing it in terms of doing love and good works like a mini Jesus for the day. There are other days where you feel like Judas and you're going to need some mini Jesuses to help you out. So we are to provoke each other to love and good works. Secondly, not neglect the weekly gathering, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. Oh boy, if you ever want a verse on why it's sinful to not attend church? Hebrews 10, 25. Showing up is often half the battle. You know, 
it's not just about coming into church every single Sunday. It's not just about sitting here for an hour and a half. See, showing up, or, or let's put it the other way, neglecting the weekly gathering of the saints isn't just about not sitting in a chair for two hours. It usually indicates that there's a lack of care for the saints. Kind of like an empty dinner table where everyone just kind of goes off into their own rooms and coexists in the same building but never actually interacts with one another. It's indicative of the family, isn't it? When the church family doesn't gather together, it's indicative of something. It shows something. Now, there are exceptions to this rule. Unusual circumstances can affect anyone. An example would be Kim, right? Because of her work, she can't be here in the morning gathering. So she comes in the evenings faithfully. But when you are in the habit of neglecting the gathering, it does two things. Firstly, it it prevents you, it puts a hard block on you knowing where your brothers and sisters are at in their lives, or even know them. And it prevents them from knowing about your life because you're not interacting with them. And to make matters worse, even inhibits your ability to worship God together with one another. You see, The vertical relationship with God isn't just something that you have alone. When you sing together, when you look around, by the way, you have permission to open your eyes and look around while you're singing. You are actually calling each other to worship. When you sing songs and you hear other voices there, it's actually supposed to stir your affections to Jesus together. When you sing truths about God together, you are actually ministering Christ to one another. So it creates this resonating um, feeling where you are preaching truth to one another and you're singing to God in worship and it reverberates and becomes a resounding noise of God's grace for you. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Don't have the attitude of Cain. Who is my brother? No. No you have a responsibility to show up, to be there. This means that even the most menial Sunday mornings are of infinite importance. Don't neglect those whom Christ has called treasured and who has, uh, whom he has treasured and called sacred. Don't neglect the body of Christ. Show up. I'd also encourage you, brothers and sisters, to show up to the evening gatherings as well. That was a time where we really gather as a church family and pray together to bear each other's burdens, to speak with one another. I would encourage you to consider going. Thirdly, he tells us to encourage one another. You are not supposed to just show up You are not just supposed to show up and smile to one another and ask how you're doing. You are actually supposed to, according to what the author of Hebrews is saying here, tell other people intentional words to build them up, to affirm them, to encourage them. Now, honestly, when was the last time that you deliberately encourage someone. 
Many of us enjoy receiving encouragements, but find it difficult for us to give them. But when you encourage other people, you're helping them, firstly, to see God's grace in their lives that they're probably not noticing. Right? It actually develops patterns for you in learning how to see God's grace in other people's lives. Haven't you met those nasty people that can't seem to see a single good thing in any other person? Like whenever you're talking to them, it's just like a damp towel got thrown in your face. When you encourage other people, you become a source of grace to them. It actually changes your own perspective. It helps you see with a grace-filled lens. There's someone that you have difficulty getting along with. I encourage you to try to find God's grace in their lives and tell them. See if it helps. See if it changes your perspective. This also means that for us, that we shouldn't be stingy with our encouragements. Come every Sunday morning with an intention to encourage. What I usually do when I have a good week and I'm, I'm more Christ-like, I pray through the members list. It's in the back of my Bible right here. So it's div- divvied up into days. Most of you have this. If you don't have it, I'll tell PJ to send out an email this week. Right? And when I read through the members and as I'm praying for them, oftentimes God will set two or three members onto my heart. And what I do is I load up my encouragement shotgun Sunday morning. Right? I come in Sunday morning, and there are people that got set on my heart that I have to deliberately seek out and encourage because I want to know how they're doing, because I care for them, because I don't want to neglect the members' lives. I encourage you to not just come into Sunday morning ambiguous and be like, oh, I guess I'm going to encourage people. No, have a game plan, be deliberate. I mean, some of y'all plan more for your sports games than you do Sunday morning. We're going to sit at this seat. We're going to have this parking spot. We're going to tailgate for this long. Come to Sunday morning with a deliberate intention to encourage each other. Imagine if you had an entire church with the members into the room spring-loaded with encouragements for one another. Wouldn't that be a marvelous place to be? Be as excited for the encouraging and building up for the saints as you would for a ball game or Hamilton or the next Marvel movie. Brothers and sisters, this can only come from an overflow of love. When you sincerely care for one another, when you have the burden that Christ has for others, you will love them. And if you read the end of verse 25, he says to do this, all the more as you see the day drawing near. So there is an eschatological or end times element to our encouragement to one another. Right? For those of us who are Christians, we believe that Christ is coming again. Amen? Amen? And that means that every single Sunday that goes by, we are a week closer to being with Jesus either through his descending onto earth or from our passing and meeting him in the sky. Which means 
that if every Sunday is when we closer to Jesus, then every single Sunday the mission of God becomes a little more urgent. It becomes more important. The time is running out. The clock is ticking. This Sunday, this morning, when we're sitting here, is one of the most important Sundays of your life thus far. Did you know, think about it, God has sovereignly ordained for us to be sitting in the chairs that we are this morning, for you to have the conversations that you would have this morning, for you to encourage each other the way that you were planning to this morning, to hug each other, to cry with one another, to counsel one another, to provoke one another to love and good works. He planned this Sunday. And every coming Sunday, will increase in importance. Don't neglect the Sunday gathering. You might think that it's just a routine for you. No, God has frequently done amazing things with normal means coupled with faithfulness. We didn't just come here by ourselves. And oftentimes our stories aren't linked to great heroes like Billy Graham or, or John Owen or George Whitfield. Oftentimes, it's from faithful preaching, from no-name pastors, from a pulpit, with no-name members who love the Lord and encourage one another. And one of the means that we have for increasing our love for one another is communion. Just as, and we're actually going to take it tonight, I believe. And just as the author of Hebrews addresses Christ's broken body and spilled blood, communion does as well. Did you notice that this passage actually mirrors communion almost perfectly? That you're recognizing Christ's body broken for you? That through the cracks of the cracker, as you press it in your mouth, you're actually thinking of Christ tearing the veil and opening a pathway for you to enter the sanctuary. As you reflect on Christ's blood spilled for you, you're recognizing Christ's cleansing work of you, that you stand right before God in the new covenant. But communion doesn't just recognize the vertical, does it? It also recognizes the horizontal. 1 Corinthians 10 talks about this, that as you eat and drink, you're recognizing the body of Christ. You're recognizing one another. And you're recognizing the responsibility that you have for one another. So I encourage you tonight, when you come in the evening gathering, that when you take communion to reflect upon God's grace for you, and not just that, but also your commitments to one another. That's why we read the church covenant together before we take it. We're not just recognizing God's vertical work in our lives. We're also recognizing the horizontal movement. God calls us to have boldness in entering the sanctuary through the curtain of Christ's flesh. But we do not enter into an empty room. No, the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Look at the passage again. There are plurals everywhere. Therefore, brothers and sisters, that's a group, we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. He has inaugurated for us a new and living way. And since we have a great and high priest, let us draw near. Let us hold on. Let us watch out. These commands are meant for one another. 
We are gathered together through the work of the Son. And because of the work of the Son, we can enter the sanctuary as we draw near. And as the works of the devil rail against us, we can hold on in the stronghold that this sanctuary holds. And we can care for fellow saints in the sanctuary as we watch out for one another. This is what Christ has purchased for us. This is what God calls us to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your work that you've done. Thank you that you have provided a way for us to enter your sanctuary, your holy place through your blood and through your body broken for us. Lord, we ask that you would give us a holy burden to care for one another, draw near. Pray that you would give us burdens for specific saints, even after this service, to approach specific people to encourage them. Pray that you would help us to grow deeper into your grace, into your love for the fellow members of this church. I pray that we would hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, that we would help bolster one another in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to have the confidence to draw near to you in acknowledgement of the work of your Son. pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.